Hello, friend. Welcome back to Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel, a curated collection of Realms' best thrillers. I am your host and friend, Neil Helligers. Thank you for coming back. Um, before we get into, I know you're you're very eager to find out what's going to happen to our friends as they approach the triangle itself. But first, we talked a little last time about what makes a thriller, what constitutes a thrilling storytelling experience. I think there are a couple of major elements to this. The first, I feel, are unexpected twists and turns, like this word from our sponsor. Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening, and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to just get used to me suddenly twisting into a word from our sponsor, because that in this world is how I roll. Anyway, um, the other thing that makes up the story is the storytellers, of course. And I, I want to talk a little bit about Dan Cobalt, who is an incredible sci-fi writer and one of the writers for The Triangle, of course. So when he's not creeping us out with his stories, he is a genetics researcher and he is doing next-gen DNA sequencing technology to solve the mystery of inherited disease. So is he, the question arises, is he making sci-fi into reality or is he unlocking um, our knowledge of humanity's future and then hiding that knowledge throughout the triangle i think there's there's a very strong possibility that's exactly what's happening so let's just get to episode two and find out this is realm this is adrenaline i'm your host neil helligers and here we go Inspector Marie St. Clair shaded her eyes against the early morning glare as she scanned the horizon for boats the dark skin around them crinkling into well-worn patterns. She'd have wrinkles before thirty, all of them well-earned. Antigua Bay saw plenty of traffic during the tourist season, and she needed to make sure it stayed that way for the sake of all the islanders who depended on foreign dollars to survive during the off-season. Ironically, her concern today was keeping people away from the water. With the tropical storm blowing in and plenty of people already spooked about the reports of lost vessels, she decided that tourists on rough water might not be the safe bet, and playing it close to the vest would be the right call. Not that St. Clair was wearing her vest. That had been last week, when they'd raided a boat they suspected of trafficking in their waters. Bulletproof gear was heavy, 
and she'd sweated through all her layers by the time it came off. Still, it had been a good day. What brought on that smile? Sergeant Fayard asked as he joined her on the deck. Ten kilos a cook? Fall off the wagon again? Shut it, St. Clair said, but her smile only widened. Their bust last week had earned her accommodation from her captain, and a string of very unflattering invectives from the drug runners. She'd enjoyed both equally. Shit, St. Clair said under her breath. The smile wiped away at the sight of a U.S. Coast Guard cutter heading out to deeper waters. Not your problem, Fayard reminded her. Coast Guard's going to do what they want. That's the truth, she agreed. But if this storm rolls them, that's more bad press for island waters. That is my problem. And her brother's problem, and her sister's problem, and their children's problem. Tourists don't want to spend time where people keep disappearing and are presumed drowned. Especially U.S. citizens. Frown deepening, St. Clair raised her binoculars to see another vessel farther out than the Coast Guard cutter. What do you think you're doing? She said to herself. Sorry. Fiard glanced up quickly from her cleavage. She smacked him before handing off the binoculars. Those are for long distances she reminded him. Sorry, he said again, a true blush rising as he cleared his throat and looked into the distance. You know I respect... Yeah, I know. Why do you think you're not in the water right now? Noted. They were quiet for a second, bodies unconsciously moving with the rise and fall of their boat, accustomed to a life at sea. Behind them, one of the corporals rested in the sun, phone tilted against the glare. St. Clair turned and glanced at his screen, her good mood dissolving completely when she saw what he was watching. A reporter stood on the beach, her arms sweeping out to sea. Underneath her scrolled arresting white letters, made more impactful on a red background. Mysterious disappearances at sea raise safety concerns. From the live feed, St. Clair could just make out her own patrol boat. That's another MLB, Fayard said, dropping the binoculars. What? Marie took them back, all her attention focused on the horizon now. A motor lifeboat, Fayard added. Um, no shit, St. Clair said, elbowing him. I'm just wondering what the hell the Coast Guard's up to. Fayard shrugged. Coast Guard business, I guess. On island waters, Marie said, mouth tight which makes it our business, too. Her crew knew what was coming, but waited for the order. They pulled anchor and gunned the motor, their patrol boat shrinking in the newsfeed as it headed out to sea, bearing down on the Coast Guard with all the might of Marie St. Clair at the helm. Christ, what now? David Segarra asked, wiping sweat from his brow. The first Coast Guard vessel had been easy enough to get rid of. All he'd had to do was pull rank and mention top-secret clearance to send the acne-scarred Coast Guard captain running his vessel back to shore, tail between his legs. But by the look on the face of the woman hailing them from the island patrol, he was guessing it'd take more than his stars to put her off the scent. Johnson was at his side as the two boats neared each other. 
They radioed, sir. And Inspector St. Clair is asking the board. Board? Cigara's usual calm was whisked away at the single word. She can't ask some polite questions first. It appears not, sir. Cigara sighed, crossing his arms. She's asking to board, he repeated in disbelief. McBride appeared on deck, his nose leading him to trouble. He took in the patrol boat and the woman who was no longer hailing them but had her arms crossed just as tightly as Cigara's. Oh, she's not asking. Cigara's mood soured even further. With McBride as an audience, he'd never be able to put the island police off without earning himself a paragraph or two in McBride's next book. Permission to board, Cigara said heavily, caving to the inevitable. To the east, a heavy rumble of thunder matched his feelings on the subject. The Antigua police boat sent out a tender carrying the woman who had hailed them, with one of her crew at the helm. Miller slowed as the tender drew broadside and Johnson anchored them. Their change of speed brought Dumont and Hammond above board as well, the latter looking slightly green around the gills. Why? Dumont began. But when she spotted their guests, she immediately fell silent. Cigara wished he could say the same for McBride who had jauntily offered a hand to assist the young woman as she climbed the ladder onto the MLB. Welcome, welcome, McBride said. I'm Alistair McBride. Yes, I know, she said, ignoring the proffered hand. Cigar noted she pulled herself aboard without hesitation, and his estimation of her, and his wariness of the situation, ratcheted up. You're familiar with my work? McBride asked. Is that what you call it? Seems like more of a hobby. The woman scanned the group, her eyes finally landing on Cigara. Inspector Marie St. Clair, Royal Police Force of Antigua, she announced herself, stepping toward him. I'd like to know what business you have on these waters. Annoying as he was, McBride's estimation of St. Clair had been correct. She didn't ask questions. Everything was a statement. Nothing that concerns the Royal Police Force, Cigara said, drawing his shoulders back. He was not a small man, but he had the feeling that if St. Clair got much closer to him, she'd be the one looking down. But I am the Royal Police Force, and I do have concerns, she said easily. Over her shoulder, a fork of lightning shot from sky to ocean. The clap that followed too close for comfort. And I have mine. Cigar countered, the most prominent being that storm. It's imperative that we be on our way before we're cut off from our destination. Which is? Damn. Cigar felt his jaw tighten, wishing he could bite back the words. For once, he was glad McBride spoke up to fill the silence. A mystery, even to us, he said. But St. Clair was not impressed her eyes slipping over the group again, assessing the Navy uniforms and Dumont's cap. A Vice Admiral, two Masters at Arms, an NTSB agent, a conspiracy theorist, and a seasick civilian all aboard a U.S. Coast Guard vessel headed out to deep sea in advance of a storm? That's no mystery. I know exactly what it is. And what is that? Sagara asked. Suspicious. How are we? 
Segara was interrupted by an ear-splitting crash of thunder and gasps as the boat pitched once again, the swell much larger than the last. See that? St. Clair nodded toward the approaching cloud bank. That's more than just a storm. That's an hourglass, and the clock is ticking. I like your style, but I'm calling you out on the mixed metaphors, McBride said. Leave the writing to writers. St. Clair refused to be distracted, her gaze holding cigars. Every minute you waste arguing with me puts you on a collision course with that storm, she said. You want to make your destination? You need to get moving. Agreed, Cigara said, getting the initiative by taking her elbow and steering her back toward the tender. I wish I could say it was lovely meeting you. St. Clair slipped his grip, not content to be directed. I'm not leaving this boat until I have answers, sir, she said, acknowledging his rank begrudgingly. A lifetime spent in the military had ingrained in Sagara the absolute, unquestioning respect that meant orders given were orders followed. He'd been so long on the top of that particular ladder, he wasn't quite sure what to do with a civilian bucking his authority. Except she wasn't a civilian, not quite. She was an inspector. And even though he wasn't part of her chain of command, he'd assumed she would snap too when he said so. But he'd said so, and there'd been no snapping too. Look, he said, dropping the military from his voice and trying for the conciliatory tone that sometimes got him further with his wife when used in moderation. It only made St. Clair's eyes narrow more tightly, but he glossed over it. I've got a situation here, he said, angling his body between her and the rest of his crew hoping for something like privacy. But right when he shifted his weight, a wave broadsided them, sending the deck out from under his feet. His sea legs recovered quickly, as did St. Clair's, but the rest of his crew went down, and a cry of alarm came from the tender, which had become untethered from their boat. Marie! The officer still aboard the tender signaled her wildly, panic at losing the connection making him drop her rank and title something McBride immediately picked up on. Oh, Marie, is it? He asked, rising to a knee and smiling even as another wave struck them, silking his shirt. That sounds like more than professional concern over there. St. Clair spared him a quick knife-like glare over Cigar's shoulder, then refocused on the Vice Admiral. And I'm raising anchor right now, Cigar said, eyes on the still-rising waves. Perfect. St. Clair smiled. Looks like I'm coming with you, then. Michael Hammond would have been perfectly happy to live and die at a desk job. At least that's what he was thinking as he hung over the boat's railing, unable to tell if the liquid hitting his face was sea spray, rain, or his own vomit. He'd been all right when they left Water Island, though the rushed nature of their departure made him anxious, constantly checking his bag of audio equipment to see if anything had been left behind. Did you leave the stove on too? Dumont had asked him, when she'd seen him unzip his duffel for the third time. The teasing had startled him, and Hammond knew it had shown on his face by the way Dumont's smile faded, aware the joke hadn't landed. Sorry, she'd said stiffly, 
turning away before he could come up with anything else. A word, a gesture, a smile. Damn it, he thought to himself. Screwed that up. Right now, he could care less about what Dumont thought of him, or Cigar's irritation at the inspector who had strong-armed her way on board, or whether or not he had left the stove on. All Michael Hammond cared about right now was not dying, and he wasn't giving himself very good odds. He'd listened to enough recovered audio in his lifetime to recognize the controlled notes of panic in Miller's voice as she operated the radio. She might not be saying Mayday yet, but the tone was close. Hammond had just beat it out of the cabin just in time to not spray vomit on the rest of the team, only to find himself the subject of McBride's scrutiny once he was on all fours. It's biblical out here, McBride yelled at him over the roar of the wind, pure elation on his face as the prow took a deep dip, sending whatever was left in Hammond's stomach to join the heaving ocean. Takes away a bit of the mystery, am I right? McBride continued, his white knuckle hold on the railing not slipping, even as a gust tore his windbreaker from shredding the zipper. Hammond could only groan in response as a wave broke over them. Cold seawater cleaned his shirt of the mess he'd made, but left behind a chill Hammond was afraid he could never break. What I mean is, McBride went on, uninhibited, is it really so shocking that we could lose boats out here, in this? From inside the cabin came Cigara's voice, more shrill than Hammond had ever heard it. What do you mean we've lost comms? Are you kidding? That was followed by Dumont's clipped words, her tone much colder than the wave that had crashed over them. I don't make jokes about losing communications at sea, sir. Of course you wouldn't, Hammond thought. We both know how those end. And when you think about it, McBride was still talking, not needing any encouragement from his audience. Planes are even less surprising. They're up there, in that. He pointed to the sky, and Hammond was gripped by a completely convincing fear that a bolt of lightning was about to strike him on the index finger, blasting the boat to pieces and taking whatever their current odds were down to zero. Zero. A round, circular number. Like a hole blown in the side of an aircraft. Like a child's screaming mouth as she plummeted from the sky. Hammond was sick again. Any attempt to aim over the side of the deck made useless by the fact that it was constantly in motion. Crouching low, head spinning, shoes slick, he grabbed hold of the railing and closed his eyes. Of course, when you take into account submarines... McBride drifted off. His professorial tone dropped. What the hell is that? Hello friend, this is Neil Helligers, host of Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit more about the Greenlight app. And this message is of course sponsored by Greenlight, but I was using, our family was using the Greenlight app uh, even before the first ad in a wonderful, thrilling, cosmic coincidence, right? See what I did there? So again, to catch you up, Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. Basically, the way it works is that parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their kids' spending and saving. And you can see exactly how much money they have in their account, and there's different ways to give them money. What we've been doing is on a, like a weekly allowance, a certain amount that goes into his account every week. 
So in order to further the conversation about money and about earning, uh, we're using Greenlight as a kind of a foundation for that conversation. Uh, in other words, instead of just the allowance he gets for certain base things that he's expected to do around the house, uh, we are also adding the chore feature, which is certain one-time payments for certain one-time jobs. For example, in our house, we're trying to encourage our son to start walking the dog more. He's old enough for it, he's responsible enough for it, and he's done it enough that he knows what to do. So he can really see that for all those extra times that he steps up and does the dog walk, he gets rewarded for that job well done. And this is the conversation. In life, when you work a little extra harder, you get a little extra compensation, and you can either save that up or spend it how you like. And we're not alone in this. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's a very easy and very convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate life together. So sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash adrenaline. That's greenlight.com slash adrenaline to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash adrenaline slash 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 slash. So thrilling, right? On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Tessa Dumont knew there was a rational explanation for everything. The Bermuda Triangle didn't factor into her assessments, and she hadn't gotten on this boat, thinking it would be the next vessel to disappear. She'd had more than a few close calls in her life, but this one might not have an ending she'd get to relate from a bar stool. Unless that bar was in Davy Jones's locker. Losing all communications had sent Sagara into the closest thing a Vice Admiral comes to panic, which meant that his jaw muscle was ticking and his voice had gone up in pitch, slightly. He'd sent Johnson and Miller below decks, supposedly to take things into his own hands, but Dumont suspected he didn't want them to see a commanding officer losing his cool. St. Clair, however, seemed to have a front row seat. I can get us there, sir, the inspector was saying. We've still got navigation. She was interrupted by a flare from the navigational screen which burst into a static snow that faded into nothing. Unfazed, she continued, We've still got a compass. But without any instruction on which direction they were heading, there was little St. Clair could do to help. Just point us north-northwest, Dumont shouted, raising her voice to be heard over the wind whipping outside. North-northwest, St. Clair shouted back, but there's nothing out there. There is, Dumont said. And if you're so determined to hear about what we're doing in your waters, you'll get us to land. Otherwise... A wave crashed over the bow, sending Dumont to her knees. But it was a more effective argument than words, and St. Clair took the helm. Sigara gave Dumont a hand up, and she fell into him heavily as they pitched forward into a swell. Is everyone below decks? she asked him. Not Hammond and that idiot McBride. Sigara answered, shaking his head. What the hell are they thinking? McBride probably isn't, Sigara said. Hammond, I don't think he wants an audience while he's vomiting. But he's fine with one while drowning? I don't... Sigara cut off, his eyes focused on something over Dumont's shoulder. 
His grip on her arm tightened enough that she gasped, twisting away. But the Vice Admiral's gaze didn't change. What the hell is that? he asked. Dumont spun, following his line of sight. Dead ahead, a wall of fog ran straight up into the sky, so dense it seemed solid. A closer look told Dumont it was swirling, but not even the force of the storm's winds could dispel it. What do you want me to do? St. Clair yelled, her hands tight on the wheel. Are we on course? Sagara asked. St. Clair glanced at the compass. Yes! Then hold your bearing! Sir? St. Clair ventured. I've never seen anything like this. Hold your bearing! Sagara repeated, eyes locking with Dumont's. They were hit with another wave, but Dumont lurched forward, making her way to stand next to St. Clair. I've never seen anything like it either, she told the other woman, leaning into her to be heard. But other people have, and part of my job is to figure out what happened to them. St. Clair was quiet, eyes ahead as their proud disappeared into the fog, no longer visible from the cabin. So we're going where they went, Demont continued. Congratulations, you talked your way onto a boat headed straight into the Bermuda Triangle. The fog enclosed them, sliding along the windows of the bridge, thick as paint. Except there is no strait anymore, St. Clair said, pointing to the onboard compass. It was spinning wildly. Sagara had seen enough shit hit enough fans to splatter 40 nautical miles. But this was something new. Was this what had happened to the Wasp? Do what you can, was the best advice he could give the St. Clair, DeMont at her side before leaving the bridge. Loyalty to sailors was what had put him in this position and he was damned if he was going to lose more on this godforsaken mission. He'd sent Johnson and Miller below decks out of caution, but he was glad now they hadn't witnessed that unearthly wall of fog. No sailor could stare it down and call it normal. Best to keep them at ease, even if that meant keeping them unaware. Sagara still had his sea legs, and the safety lighting led him down the narrow metal stairs to where Johnson and Miller sat, shoulder to shoulder. Even in the tight quarters, they attempted to rise when he entered the room. Addy. He didn't get to finish his order. Interrupted by the sound of tearing metal, a bone-jarring shudder shook their boat, and Sagara felt each rip in the hull as if it were his own skin giving way. He was thrown off his feet, head narrowly missing the sharp-edged metal corner of the electrical box. Johnson was not so lucky. It caught him on the curve of the neck, the shower of blood instantaneous. Well-trained, Miller was at his side immediately, but Johnson was past all assistance. Miller got him onto his back with Sigara's help, but neither of them expected anything other than the blank, unseeing stare that met them, his torn throat flapping open like a circus tent. Sir? Miller's voice was steady, but she lacked the capacity to put together any sort of question to follow that one word. Sagara put a hand on her shoulder, knowing instinctively that the young sailor had never seen death before. It was easy to spot when you knew what to look for. The rush of shock, followed by an eerie calm and detached fascination. 
Miller's eyes followed his movements as he stripped Johnson of his sidearm. Afraid it might appear heartless, Sagara searched for words, but was saved from responding by a cold rush of seawater that flowed in through the rupture, mixing with Johnson's blood. Hulls breached. St. Clair had to admire the calm way the Vice Admiral relayed this information, even though she didn't need anyone to tell her. No shit, she shot back. The wheel jerky in her hands, made clumsy by the weight of the water they were taking on and the storm that still battered them. What the hell did we hit? Sagara asked. That was metal on metal, DeMont said, echoing St. Clair's thoughts. They had hit another boat, even if they couldn't see it in this persistent fog. We're taking on water. What's our bearing? Sagara asked. I have no idea, St. Clair shouted. Compass is out. It's back, DeMont cried, her voice betraying her relief. She pointed a shaky finger at the needle, which had them pointing due north. His face a mask of stoicism. Sagara left the bridge, yelling over his shoulder, I'll try for a visual. DeMont shook her head. Not in this weather. St. Clair glanced at the woman beside her. And not in these waters. I told you, if the compass is working correctly and we're headed north-northwest, there's nothing out here. All her words garnered was a tight nod from DeMont. Her eyes still raking the completely obscured window of the bridge, searching for any chance of survival. gust shook them again. Was it false hope? Or was St. Clair right in thinking that it lacked the power of the last one? Under her palms, the wheel trembled, reminding her that storm or no storm, a boat taking on water had little hope. Out of the gloom, a palm slapped heavy and hard onto the glass, making both women jump. Sagara's face loomed beside it a second later as he pointed to the north. And though she couldn't hear him, St. Clair could easily decipher the one word on his lips. Land. Hammond had asked to die after he lost Amanda, believing there was nothing left for him in the world. Now, coldly assured by the wind and the rain that he was still solidly located in reality, he wondered if it was time to ask again. Hammond was all too familiar with the sound of metal screeching against metal. McBride would have lost his fingers if Hammond hadn't grabbed him around the knees, pulling him back from the railing right before a rusted hulk slid past them, flakes chipping onto the deck. The whole boat shook, and McBride came down on top of him, flattening Hammond's ribcage. Get off, Hammond said through gritted teeth. But any more words were squeezed completely out of him when Sagara stepped directly onto McBride's back, not bothering with apologies. Land! The Vice Admiral was yelling. Land! McBride wiggled off him, and Hammond hauled himself onto his feet, barely getting out of the way in time for a blood-streaked Sagara to head back to the bridge, his steps confident though the boat was still being lashed by rain. Whose blood was that? Hammond asked, turning to McBride who immediately began patting himself down, checking for damage. You're fine, Hammond assured him, though his tone was less than kind. He was pretty sure his ribs were bruised, if not actually broken. 
I am too, by the way. Someone's not, McBride said, and Hammond, inexplicably, thought of DeMont. Her honey-colored ponytail streaked with red. He'd imagined Amanda that way, on many sleepless nights. How her face must have looked, what her final thoughts could have been. His job put him into intimate contact with death, but only the sounds of it. It was the visuals that had kept him awake those first months after he'd lost his fiancée. And now he cursed his imagination as he felt his way down the railing, intent on making the bridge. If he could find it. The fog still hung heavy around them, but he was vaguely conscious of an outline in the midst, a gray shape that seemed more dense than the others. Surely that wasn't the land Sagara was yelling about. They were right on top of it. In another second. Reverse engines! Hammond heard the Vice Admiral yelling from the bridge. At the same time, a weaker voice called out, Help! Hammond turned to see Miller struggling up the hatch. Johnson's inert form across her shoulders, camo wet to the knees. He'd made it two steps toward her when the boat came to a sudden, shuddering stop. Johnson's body was thrown from Miller's shoulders, and she went sprawling, head hitting the last metal stair with a sickening wet thud. Hammond ran to help, the boat solid beneath his legs, no longer pitched by the storm. We're grounded, he thought. Any relief to that fact immediately overtaken by the smell of diesel. Fuel leak, he yelled to anyone who could hear him, still struggling to get to Miller, who wasn't moving. One glance at Johnson's slumped form was all it took to know Miller was the priority. Abandon ship, Cigar yelled as he rushed past. Hammond, grab whatever you can and be quick about it. What? More than just Miller? Was Hammond's immediate thought, until he saw the prescience of the command. My bag, shit. His audio rig was not light, and neither was Miller. The trip had cost him more than a weak stomach, and Hammond's knees gave a little as he rose up, Miller draped over one shoulder. I've got her, came a voice. McBride was at his side, shifting Miller's weight over to him. Get your audio rig, we're gonna need it. Hammond nodded his thanks, reassessing Alistair, until he noticed that the only thing McBride was salvaging other than Miller was a copy of his own book. Writers, Hammond muttered under his breath, throwing his duffel over his shoulder and making for the ladder. St. Clair made it first, arms loaded with bottled water, the boat's first aid kit dangling from her elbow. Smart, Hammond thought, impressed as she skipped the ladder entirely, going for the short leap to wet sand below. He followed suit and sank in up to his ankles, the still roiling tide, now brightly colored with diesel fuel, threatening to mire him. Here, came a shout, and Sagara pulled him free with one hand, the other tightly gripping a sidearm. Really? Hammond's stressed mind spat out. All you salvaged was a gun? But he was glad Sagara didn't have full hands when a wave crashed onto the beach, knocking over McBride and dumping Miller off his shoulders into the water. A true swimmer, Sagara exhaled completely before going under after her. Gasping, McBride got back to his feet, fanning the pages of his book in a vain attempt to dry the pages in the still-falling rain. Hammond looked down at his own bag and saw that it was wet up to the zipper. DeMont! Hammond screamed at Cigar as he surfaced, 
one of Miller's limp arms around his neck. Where's DeMont? The Vice Admiral looked to the beach, but only St. Clair McBride could be seen, running for the shelter of some overhanging rocks. Hammond glanced at the boat, where he could see Dumont still on the bridge, tearing at the dashboard. I'll go, he called to Sagara, who was dragging the unconscious Miller to shore. Sea water dripping from them both. Hammond's arms barely held his weight as he clambered up the ladder, feet slipping on the deck as a gust pushed him from behind. He flung open the door to the bridge to see Dumont wielding a crowbar. What the hell are you doing? yelled at her over the rain pummeling the roof. Dumont either didn't hear him or chose to ignore him, wedging the crowbar into the dash and pressing down with all her might. Plastic cracked, and a flying piece of debris nearly hit Hammond in the face. He grabbed her arm. We've got to go! Dumont glanced back at him, crowbar in hand, shoving her wet hair out of her face with the other. It was more than a little intimidating. There's a fuel leak, he insisted, pulling on her arm. Are you seriously here to save me? She asked. I'm not a damsel in distress. I'm a woman trying to ensure that we'll be able to send a distress call. She shook off his hand, turned back to the dash, and jammed the crowbar above the radio, giving a tremendous heave. There was another crack of plastic. So kindly, get out of my way. The dash split in two, and Dumont buried her hands around the radio, tugging it free. She pushed past Hammond, handing it to him. Keep this dry, she instructed, and disappeared out into the storm. Hammond tucked the radio under his jacket, where it pressed against his aching ribs. Above him, on the bridge roof, he heard another horrific crack. Christ, what is she doing now? an antenna, Dumont thought, using all her strength on the crowbar to lever it free of the bridge roof. She'd analyzed hundreds of crash sites for her job, but never thought she'd be putting those skills to use on her own. St. Clair had pulled the first aid kit from the wall the second they hit land, trusting Dumont to her own skills with a quick nod and a shoulder squeeze as she left, which she greatly preferred over Hammond's ham-handed attempt at gallantry. He was still green around the gills, and she might end up carrying him off the wreck. Still, he wasn't wrong. The diesel fumes were strong, and they should all be clear. But Dumont couldn't stomach leaving the radio at risk of ruin if water reached the bridge. And once she had the radio, it only made sense to get the antenna as well. Without it, the radio would be useless. Hammond's head appeared over the edge of the roof, one arm curled around the radio nestled under his jacket. What are you doing? The crowbar popped free of the wedge she was attempting to make, sending her back a step. Dumont slipped off the roof onto forward storage, crowbar flying. Hammond must have been feeling better than she thought. He was at her side in a moment. You okay? Yeah, she said, looking straight up into the rain, black spots dancing with the drops. I'm fine. A roll of thunder contradicted her. Look. Hammond said, voice oddly calm against the backdrop of the storm. We need the antenna. I get it. But we're leaking fuel. It's the middle of a storm, and you're trying to pry it off a metal roof using a crowbar. You're a human lightning rod, and I've already seen one dead body today. 
Johnson, DeMont thought. Shit. She blinked against the rain, and Hammond gave her a hand up. Let's get to shore, he said. The antenna will be here when you get back. Technically, there was a chance it wouldn't. The storm swell was still strong, but the boat did seem solidly grounded. DeMont was used to setting a goal and accomplishing it, no matter the obstacles. But Hammond was right. Getting herself electrocuted wouldn't do the team any good. Or herself, for that matter. Still seeing stars, DeMont slid down with Hammond to the wet sand. The storm was letting up in ferocity, and the fog seemed to be pulling away from the shore, but a dense rain was falling. They found their way to the overhanging rocks McBride and St. Clair had been running for, believed to find a shallow cave that offered shelter. The rest of the team was huddled together, Sagara and St. Clair leaning over Miller's prone body. McBride hovered, making suggestions that weren't needed. How is she? DeMont asked. St. Clair shook her head. Unconscious. I bandaged the wound, but it's not external injuries I'm worried about. DeMont nodded. If Miller remained unconscious, her brain could swell enough to pinch off its own blood supply and starve itself of oxygen. They had nothing to stop the swelling, and Miller could easily die on their watch without ever waking up. Cigar leaned back on his haunches, stripping off his camo jacket to bundle under Miller's head. We'll need to retrieve Johnson, he said to no one in particular. He's below, Hammond said. Miller lost him back down the stairs when she collapsed, and I... He had to choose, DeMont thought. I should go easier on this guy. It's all right, she said, resting a hand on his shoulder. Nothing you could have done for him, Cigar agreed. But the hull was damaged. He didn't go on, but DeMont could infer plenty. Johnson's body was underwater, which would make recovery more difficult and, to be frank, a lot more disgusting, depending on how long it was before they could retrieve him. The hull must have been badly damaged to let in that much seawater before St. Clair had grounded the boat. DeMont remembered the shudder of impact, the twisting, screaming sound of metal on metal. We hit another boat out there, she said, turning to Hammond. There could be survivors. He shook his head. It was a wreck. If there was anyone left on that boat, they'd been dead a while. Dead and in a lot worse shape than Johnson, DeMont thought. Did you get a good look at it? She asked. Could it have been one of the crafts we're looking for? No, McBride said, joining the conversation. That was a rotted out hulk. Chunks of rust fell off it as big as my... He cut himself short when he caught Dumont's glare. Well, they were big, anyway. So we've got one dead and one injured, Sagara said, assessing the situation. We've salvaged some bottles of water, one first aid kit, good thinking St. Clair, and two sidearms, mine and Johnson's. And you're going to carry both, St. Clair asked, eyebrows indicating her disagreement. For now, Sagara said. One radio, DeMont announced and couldn't help adding. But no antenna. My audio rig, Hammond chimed in. And a copy of the Bermuda Triangle. There are three sides to every story. 
facts, theories, and conspiracies, McBride said, raising his book in the air. Two subtitles? DeMont asked. I couldn't pick. Where does that leave us? Sagara asked. Uh, chapters one through four are badly water damaged. Not your damn book, the Vice Admiral interrupted McBride. Where does that leave us in terms of rescue and getting medical assistance for Miller here? McBride fanned his pages, sulking. For now, nowhere, sir, DeMont said. I can't send a signal unless we have the antenna. Can you make that happen once the storm has passed? DeMont didn't want to spread false hope. She hadn't assessed the condition of the radio and had weighed the odds of damaging it through removal versus it being melted in a possible diesel fire. The antenna didn't seem damaged by their crash, but she couldn't give the team anything other than her honest opinion. It should be possible, she said, careful to not make any promises. Does anyone know where we are? Even with a functioning radio and antenna, she'd need to let the rescue teams know their location. We were heading north-northwest before the compass went insane, St. Clair said, rising from her position next to Miller. But I don't know how long we were navigating that storm. DeMont knew what St. Clair meant. It had felt like a lifetime. The compass went insane? McBride asked. Like it was wielding a hatchet and making threats, or, wait, don't tell me, it couldn't find true north? St. Clair sighed. A shared glance between her and Dumont, all it took to set a smile spreading across McBride's face. That wall of fog? A spinning compass? Guys, we're in the Bermuda Triangle! His smile didn't exactly fade when everyone gave him dark looks. What? That's exactly what we wanted, right? Yes. Cigar concurred, eyes still on Miller. Just not like this. The storm passed, and St. Clair watched the light change as the fog pulled farther out to sea. As it receded, she could spot the wreck they'd hit and could almost feel the reverberations from the impact in her arms again. Damn it, she thought, spotting a long scrape down the side of the old ship where they made contact. If I hadn't hit it. But no, what's done was done, and going over it in her mind would change nothing. Johnson was dead, Miller comatose, and while those two things weren't necessarily on her conscience, there was nothing to blame but her own bullheadedness for the fact that she was sitting here on a rock, stranded in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. Nice work, Marie, she said aloud, her voice catching in her throat when she spotted something else in the surf. Dear God, is that a helicopter blade? St. Clair shaded her eyes. It could be a propeller. Who knew how many wrecks littered the sea around this place? A hand clapped on her shoulder, and she gripped it instinctively, bending the wrist until there was a high cry from behind her. I give, McBride said, down on his knees in the sand. I was just coming to tell you we're headed over to our wreck. Our boat, she corrected him. We don't know for sure it's a wreck, and don't sneak up on women. You heard the hull tearing, same as me, he said, rubbing his forearm. Our boat's a loss, and I wasn't sneaking. 
maybe not on purpose. But he had come up behind her very silently for a man of his size. St. Clair wasn't used to being taken by surprise. Sorry, she said. Are you hurt? Only my pride, he said with a smile. But that'll be fine once my book's dry. St. Clair spotted it on a ledge, pages fanning in the breeze. It's salvageable, McBride assured her. Some of my notes were in ink, and they did run a bit, but I should be able to reconstruct them from memory. I'm working on a deluxe edition with new material. Uh-huh, St. Clair said, sliding off the rock without encouraging him to continue. She didn't need to. McBride followed her as she trailed the rest of the team, a steady flow of unwanted information filling her ears. What the hell? DeMont's voice carried back to them as she broke into a run. Headed for the boat, St. Clair hit the brakes, instinctively spreading her arms and stepping in front of McBride to shield him from any danger. Still talking, he walked directly into her, stepping on the backs of her shoes. So much for being light on his feet. What's going on? He asked directly into her ear. Why hadn't she thought to grab toothpaste and a toothbrush as well? I don't know. There's... Holy shit! He interrupted her, breaking into a run. The antenna is gone! Everything is gone! St. Clair corrected him. She knew better than most how profitable it could be to strip boats. Anyone who took the antenna was smart enough to lift more than that. St. Clair didn't bother running to catch up to McBride. And if there was nothing left on the boat now, there'd be nothing there later either. The antenna will be here when you get back! DeMont was throwing Hammond's words back in his face. That's what you said! Vice Admiral Sagara traversed the deck, lightly stepping over the hatch below, where he could see the water had risen at least four feet. How was I supposed to know? Hammond was trying to defend himself, but it was not going well. Sigara shook his head as he lowered himself into the water below decks. DeMont was pissed, and rightly so. The loss of the antenna meant a lot of things, none of them good. But it wasn't only the antenna that was gone. Sigara had swept the deck, noting every removed bolt, the cracked console inside the bridge, He'd had to drop himself below decks using his forearms. The bastards who'd stripped them had even taken the damn stairs. Whoever it had been, and that was something he needed to know right now, as in yesterday, they had left one thing behind. One thing they couldn't use, but which Sagara was relieved to see. Sorry, Johnson, he said under his breath, hooking the corpse with his elbow. By the time he'd hauled the body above board, nothing short of pure chaos had erupted among the others. St. Clair was off to the side of the wreck, her brow furrowed, focused intent on the ground. Hammond stood, arms crossed, clearly unsure what to do with himself, while DeMont had climbed onto the deck, discovering nothing that Sigara hadn't already learned. McBride hauled himself over the edge of the ladder, upper lip laden with sweat. You guys, he said. You guys! They even took my damn crowbar, DeMont shouted at no one in particular. Yes, but who? McBride asked, finally getting the imperative question out. Who took your crowbar? That brought DeMont up short. 
as did the sight of Johnson's body, limp and soaking wet on the deck. Sorry, sir, she said weakly. It's just a crowbar. But they also got the antenna, Sigara said, skipping over her apology. And the mechanicals. They stripped this thing clean. All we've got is what we brought ashore with us. And a dead body, McBride offered, not blanching when they glared at him. What, too soon? Hammond joined them on deck, cheeks still burning from the going over Dumont had given him. Have some respect, he said to McBride. Hey, we might be glad to have it, McBride shot back. No antenna means no rescue crew. Who knows how long we might be here, and if there's nothing to eat, enough! Cigara roared, well aware that while Alistair McBride might not respect his rank, he sure as hell would be intimidated by his temper. You may not be one of my sailors, he said, advancing on McBride, finger stabbing at his face, but you will respect the dead. Mine, yours, and whoever else. He stopped himself but the implication was clear to everyone. Cigar didn't expect to get out of here without more loss of life, if they got out of here at all. Vice Admiral, came St. Clair's voice, cool and measured from the beach. You need to get down here. Cigar hit the wet sand, the others trailing behind as he approached St. Clair. She was crouching low, fingers tracing over the soft beach. See here, she said to him when he joined her near the ground. They wiped away their tracks with something. Maybe palm leaves. They had done a decent job, too. St. Clair had picked out their track in patches, but Sigara himself couldn't see where they'd broken into the underbrush, if they had at all. Can you follow it? he asked St. Clair. I don't think so, she shook her head. I can maybe pick up another spot or two, give us a general sense of their direction, but I won't be able to track them, no. She headed for the trees anyway. Whoever they were, they knew how to cover their asses. We're assuming they have asses, came McBride's voice. Yes, Sigara said evenly. We're assuming that. Is that smart? McBride continued, unabashed, when Dumont raised her arms in frustration. What are you even saying right now? she asked. Humans, he announced when he noticed the blank stares from the group. Everyone is jumping to the conclusion that we're dealing with humans. I wouldn't call it a huge leap, Hammond argued. You wouldn't? McBride rounded on him, ready for an opponent. We're in the Bermuda Triangle. We experienced complete mechanical failure on our boat right before our compass reacted to a magnetic anomaly. I realize that you might not all have your alien and UFO encounters cross-referenced in your heads, but I do, and I'm telling you, this is textbook. And these aliens... Hammond looked at McBride closely. They don't have asses? It earned him an annoyed swat from McBride but an amused snort from Dumont. Laugh it up, McBride said. In the future, remember that I accept apologies in the form of compliments. Regardless of who or what stripped our boat, we're in a situation here, Cigar reminded them. 
but you've got an injured person, very little water, no food, no way to signal for help, and an unidentified number of persons in our immediate vicinity whose intentions we are unaware of. St. Clair rejoined the group, shaking her head when Sagara met her eyes. She hadn't been able to pick up the trail. They didn't come looking for us, DeMont said suddenly. What do you mean? Hammond asked. They saw a wrecked boat? Had to have known we were in distress? Maybe even saw our tracks? It wasn't raining as heavily by the time Hammond and I left the bridge. They knew we were here and they didn't come find us. I don't think they mean any harm. Same situation, different angle, Sagara responded. They saw a wrecked boat, stripped it, and showed no interest whatsoever in discovering who came ashore. And they took our only means of signaling for rescue. Whoever they are, they're not here to help us either. DeMont acquiesced. It was an equally viable interpretation. So, McBride scanned the group. What now? Sagara sighed, wiping the sweat from his brow. We bury Johnson. Bury him. Here. Sir, I... St. Clair began, but Sagara cut her short with an outward palm. This is a waterlogged body. I'm assuming you have some experience with those? St. Clair nodded grimly. I don't like it any more than you do, Sagara went on. Probably less. But the fact of the matter is that we have no immediate means of leaving the area, and Johnson will be a breeding ground for bacteria sooner rather than later. He may not be home, but this will be his final resting place. Okay, McBride agreed. But like DeMont said, they even took her crowbar. What are we going to bury him with? You got a pair of these? Sigara asked, holding out his hands. Yeah? Use them. Hammond had been to plenty of funerals, but he'd never buried anyone. A somber mood settled over the group as they worked, hands digging first in soft, warm sand, then deeper into cool soil that jammed underneath his fingernails, pushing back the soft skin there. His desk job certainly hadn't kept him in any type of physical shape over the years, but he was surprised at how quickly he wore down, arms tired, muscles aching. He could remember a time, it couldn't have been that long ago, when he and Amanda would run a few miles before dinner, just because they could. Christ, I probably couldn't run the length of a football field right now, he thought, stepping aside to make room for McBride, who was incredibly, barely sweating. They'd been spelling each other in turns, those at rest taking periodic small sips from the bottled water St. Clair had brought down from the cave, along with a report that Miller was still unconscious but breathing steadily. Beside him, Dumont stretched her legs, achy from all the crouching. She could probably run a mile, Hammond thought, eyeing them then chastised himself for checking out another woman's legs right after reminiscing about Amanda. What's wrong with you, he thought. But the answer came reflexively. Nothing. Nothing was wrong with him. He was alive, stranded on a deserted island with an intelligent, good-looking woman. And if he noticed her legs while burying a dead body, 
Okay, yeah, maybe there was something to be said for timing. Getting there, Sagara said, glancing at the size of the hole. They'd agreed that six feet deep was unrealistic, but they had no idea what kind of wildlife might inhabit the island, and nobody wanted to bury Johnson a second time, not to mention attract anything in the first place. Anything. Hammond gave a shudder. He didn't buy McBride's theories, but he had to admit that something odd was going on around them. The mechanical failure, the compass, all the crafts that had disappeared into these waters before them. And Hammond hadn't missed what might be blades rising above the sea either. They caught his attention and his breath for a moment. Then his eyes meant St. Clair's, and she shook her head. Later, he thought. Later, he pointed out the additional wreck. One more to add to the list of what they'd already come in search of plus the identity of the wreck they'd crashed into, and who knew what was underneath the waves. Hammond suppressed another shiver, happy to be moving again and building up a sweat when Sagara asked to be relieved. McBride still worked doggedly and without complaint. Hammond had to hand it to him. If you gave the guy something to do, he tore into it. Back in the hole, Hammond ran his hands along the sides, knocking free some loose dirt only to have to scoop it back out. His shoes were filthy, the cups of his jeans the same color as the earth around him. One handful and another, clump after clump, Hammond worked, the pile beside him growing larger, the movement now wrote. He was about to cave, admit that he could work no longer, when Cigar declared the hole deep enough. McBride and Hammond lowered Johnson in, McBride immediately pushing sand back into the hole, should we, I don't know, say something? Dumont asked. I've got something to say, McBride huffed. Get down here and help. Reddening, Dumont fell to her knees beside him and Hammond, pushing heavy mounds of sand into Johnson's grave. Hammond was just packing down the ground when he heard someone behind him. What are you doing? The voice was high and sing-song and Hammond answered without thinking. Packing it, trying to keep water out, he said, wiping the sweat on his brow. Figure it's the least we can do for the poor bastard. There was silence for a moment, followed by, That's a bad word. Bad word? He glanced up, suddenly aware that McBride had fallen still beside him, and that the rest of the group was utterly silent. Near the grave, at eye level with Hammond, stood a little girl wearing a faded sundress, under which her bare feet stuck out, scabbed and sandy, one toenail clearly ingrown. In one hand she held a stuffed rabbit by the ear, his bottom legs dragging in the dirt, one eye loose in the socket held in place by a single string. Who? the girl asked, pushing her dirty hair out of her face. Who is a poor bastard? Um, I... Hammond glanced at the team, but no one had anything to offer. All eyes were locked onto the little girl, so he went with the truth. Someone who died, he told her. She nodded, unfazed. My daddy died. Who is your daddy, sweetheart? DeMont came to life, 
edging close to the little girl as if afraid she might balk at sudden movement. The little girl only shrugged. He's my daddy. Okay, Dumont said agreeably. When was this? I don't know, the girl said, standing on one foot as she scratched her leg with the other. Time's funny. Time is funny, Dumont agreed, her tone still smooth and calm. But do you have any idea? Can you tell me how long you've been here? The girl's face scrunched up as if she were calculating, but all her concentration only ended up in another shrug. St. Clair stood, easing her way over to the girl and motioning to Cigar to cover the worst of Johnson's injuries. How about this? St. Clair said, clapping her hands together when the girl's eyes moved to Cigara. What can you tell us about yourself? I'm five, and I like to fly in Daddy's plane, the girl announced proudly, and something in her tone tickled Hammond's memory. Yeah, St. Clair said affably. And who is this you've got with you? She motioned to the rabbit, touching an index finger lightly to his black plastic eye. That's Mr. Babbitt, the girl said. He takes good care of me. I bet he does, St. Clair went on. But a cold feeling rushed through Hammond, one he knew Dumont, McBride, and Cigara could feel as well. Mr. Babbitt, Jesus. This was the little girl from the audio. Dumont caught his eye, her own round and unbelieving. She was alive. That little girl was alive and talking to them here on the beach. It wasn't some unknown third passenger or co-pilot she'd been talking about on the audio, but her stuffed rabbit. But he didn't land the plane for her, Hammond thought. How the hell was this girl standing here, right now, alive and fine? Minus a few scratches here and there, plus a heck of a big bug bite on her calf. Kiddo? Hammond interrupted St. Clair, who was still asking the little girl about her stuffed animal. Unaware of the magnitude of the girl's presence, having never heard the audio recording of her crash. What's your name? Can you tell me that? I'm Olivia she said brightly. I'm five years old and I love to fly. Shit, McBride said, no longer able to hold it in. Shit, shit, shit. Olivia's brow furrowed, her teeth clamping down on her bottom lip. Nice, Demont said, smacking McBride on the shoulder. But Hammond didn't think it was McBride's language that had caused Olivia's consternation. Her eyes were looking out to sea a worry line that no five-year-old should have, creasing deeply on her brow. We have to go, she said abruptly, pulling Mr. Babbitt tight to her chest, the animal's loose eye rolling freely on its furred cheek. We have to go now. Why is that? St. Clair asked, rubbing Olivia's arm. Why do we have to go? It's time to hide, she said, and we need to go. Her voice faded a little her gaze growing panicked as she swept the horizon. We need to go now, honey, Demont said, coming to the girl's side. Everything is okay. We're here. Everything is going to be... No, St. Clair said, her worry lines deepening as she looked at Olivia. This kid is scared. 
and she knows this island better than we do. If she says we need to hide, I say we go. But why? Dumont asked, hands on Olivia's shoulders, which were shaking now, as she began backpedaling. The girl stared back at her, wide-eyed. Because the moon people are coming. I mean, isn't it always the case, right? Like you roll up to your your, your sweet vacation spot and you're, you're, you hit the beach right away because you can't wait. And then you go back to your car to get your stuff. And it's like, oh no, someone stripped our car. And, and then there's this weird girl who's telling you that, oh, by the way, you're not alone on the island. And then there's moon people and all sorts of craziness ensues. And then when your antenna is gone, it's like all of a sudden your vacation rescue mission has turned into a vacation survival mission, right? So um, thrilling, you know, it's, it's so funny being the voice actor for this because I know exactly what happens next. And as the host, I'm supposed to be like, what's gonna happen next? But I already know, but I won't spoil anything, I promise. And, but I will guarantee that all of your questions will be answered. So I will definitely see you next time for episode three of The Triangle, here on Adrenaline, here on Realm. Take care. You're listening to Adrenaline, The Triangle, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Triangle is created by Dan Cobalt and written by Dan Cobalt, Sylvia Spruck Wrigley, and Mindy McGinnis. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Neil Helligers. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Ladshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Bagala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>